Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, brought to you by Canon Plus. This week's episode is a talk from Dr. Steve Jeffrey, entitled, A Scientist and a Christian? How is that possible? Listen to more from Dr. Jeffrey in the Word MP3 collection on Canon Plus. Well, listen, it's um, a pleasure for me to be here. Thank you for the invitation. It's great to see you. Um, uh, I'm always amused by people's reactions when I tell them about what I do, especially when I, if I then tell them what I used to do. Um, I had a conversation like this. I was picking up a hire car from the airport, and I got chatting to the, the guy who works at the desk um, at the Hertz sort of kiosk. He, he saw my driving license that it said reverend. And it also says doctor. And so he said, well, do you, do you still practice? <laughs> um, said, no, I'm not that kind of doctor. I'm not the kind of doctor that's any use on an aeroplane. Um, uh, I said, I, my doctor is in physics. And then I, what usually happens is what happened then is a pause for about three seconds as his eyebrows vanish three inches up his forehead. Um, and he said something like, really? A scientist and a Christian? How is that possible? And I think uh, tonight, what I'd like to do, uh, if I may, is just to try and answer that question. Um, how is it possible uh, for me to be a Christian, uh, much less a minister, and to have been a scientist, and not to see those two worldviews in such irreconcilable conflict? Because let's be honest, for many people... Um, the progress of science has been the thing that is the death knell to religion. Uh, and it's, it's easy to understand why people should think like that, but I don't think we should think like that. I think it's possible to be a scientist, to be scientifically minded, and to believe in the God of the Bible. And I want to explain some reasons why tonight. Really, what I want to do is um, to give you four reasons to believe. These are reasons which take the form of inadequacies in the reigning scientific paradigm, which I'll explain in a moment, moment or two, inadequacies in that way of looking at the world, which can be remedied by looking at the world through Christian eyes. That is to say, if you are a scientist and not a Christian, I think you've got four significant problems in the way that you look at the world, the way you understand the world, which, if you were a Christian, would not pose the same kind of problems for you. And I want to outline uh, what those are. One is a historical issue, really. Uh, one is more philosophical in nature, and then the other two are more, I suppose you might say, empirical or experimental. And all of these things have been exposed by the progress of science. As science has advanced... Scientific progress has uncovered questions that the reigning paradigm can't answer. And I want to share this with you. Uh, I've spoken a couple of times already about this reigning paradigm. I better tell you what it is. Most modern science operates with a paradigm which might be called reductive materialism. Uh, it's not as complicated as it sounds. This way of thinking about the world has dominated the landscape since the scientific revolution of the 17th century. Broadly speaking, uh, it is a form of materialism, which means that it asserts that matter, or perhaps matter and energy, are the only things that exist. 
Matter is the only thing that exists, matter or matter and energy, materialism. And it's reductive materialism because it seeks to explain complicated things by reducing them down to simpler things. Okay, so to, to put it most crudely, it, it uh, conceives of a hierarchical relationship between the sciences, bi biology at the pinnacle with all the complexity of something like the human body, and chemistry below that, and then physics below that. That's a crude simplification, but you see how it works. So with the human body, for example, a phenomenally complicated biological machine, which reductive materialism would seek to explain by breaking it down into its component parts, cells and uh, subcellular components. And at that sort of level, you start to be concerned more with biochemistry, microbiology, chemical interactions between molecules and cell membranes and so on. And those chemical interactions, which themselves are quite complicated, protein folding, that sort of thing, can themselves be explained at a simpler level, a smaller scale level by physics. So can you see how the structure works? Materialism, matter is all there is. Reductive materialism, we seek to explain this material world by a process of reducing things to smaller scale and simpler components. And this way of looking at the world has been responsible for spectacular progress in the last 300 years, 350 years or so. It is hard to overstate the dramatic changes that have taken place, just if you look back 20 years, never mind 300 years, because of this way of looking at the world. But that way of looking at the world has exposed some shortcomings in that worldview itself. And as I try and just tease those things out, those four reasons, those four shortcomings, I want to highlight an alternative. An alternative which uh, we might call Christian theism, which proposes that matter is not all that there is. Theism asserts that the physical world is sustained by a pure mind, that is to say, the mind of God. The, the physical world is real, but it is, so to speak, not the ultimate reality. It is sustained by something else. So the world behaves in a regular and predictable way. It obeys what we might call physical laws because God, that pure mind, upholds the world in a regular and predictable way. It's not self-sustaining. This is how Christian theism construes the world, not as self-sustaining, but as divinely sustained. And it seems to me that if we uh, think through the implications of this way of looking at the world, we can arrive at a, a position which has all the strengths that the scientific revolution has bequeathed to us, but avoids some of the most dramatic weaknesses. Just one final note of introduction before I tackle these um, uh, uh, issues one at a time. It should be clear that what I'm not proposing is what is sometimes called a God of the gaps theory. A God of the gaps is uh, it's a criticism really levelled at mainly Christians who are thought to be introducing God into the picture at the point where scientists shrug their shoulders and say, Bow. so science um, has, un has led to this growth in understanding. There are still some corners of the room that science hasn't reached and we allow God to fill the gaps. Maybe God is the one who decides how a wave function collapses in quantum mechanics and so on. That's not what I'm proposing. 
God is the God of the gaps, yes, but he's the God of everything else as well. I'm proposing not that God just fills the corners of the room where science hasn't got yet, but that the living God who is the creator of heaven and earth and is revealed in the Bible is the one who sustains and upholds everything, even the things that science can explain. Because he, he operates, we might say, at a different level of explanation. I'm going to flesh these things out, so if they're feeling a bit fuzzy right now, don't worry, hopefully they'll become clearer. And if they don't, as um, Phil said, we'll have time for questions at the end. So, these uh, four reasons to believe, four shortcomings of uh, reductive materialism. Here's the first, is a historical reason. And it has to do with the origins of the scientific method as we understand it. Reductive materialism stemmed from a conscious and deliberate decision back in the 17th century by people like Galileo and Descartes to restrict themselves to investigating certain things with scientific tools. What I realised was that the new, uh, the scientific revolution, the revolution in experimentation, people learned how to make lenses and this kind of thing so they could make microscopes and telescopes. People were set free to a certain extent from the shackles of um, religious tyranny in the medieval church. So they were free to uh, explore uh, the world of experiments and they were free to publicise their results without <coughs> so much fear of being imprisoned or having their heads chopped off. Um, this scientific revolution allowed people to investigate certain phenomena, but not others. In other words, it allowed them to investigate the material world, but it gave them no access to what we might call the world of the mind, the mental world, the world of human consciousness. It wasn't that people said the mind isn't there. People simply realised that scientific experimentation couldn't give you access to it. So in effect what they said was, okay, here's everything. We've got physical phenomena over here and mental phenomena, mind and consciousness and perhaps issues of ethics and value over here. What we'll do is we'll use these tools of science to explain and deal with the material world and at some point in the future we will have to come back to these other issues, these other problems. Make sense? People, in other words, self-consciously decided to investigate part of the problem. Now that had two consequences. The first was the spectacular progress in the physical sciences, in the biological sciences, because it turns out these scientific tools are extremely good at investigating those material <coughs> phenomena. But the, the second consequence, which we see around us today, is a negative one. It appears that some people have forgotten the history They've forgotten that uh, this material world was only ever conceived of as part of the natural order. And now they speak as though science can explain everything. Rather than seeing this as something, the mind and so on over here, as something which we'll have to come back to, they're treating it as if it's not real at all, because, they say, science can't explain it. Peter Atkins, one of the professors at Oxford who I studied under, writes this. He's a physical chemist. He says, there is no reason to suppose that science, by which he means reductive materialism, there is no reason to suppose that science cannot deal with every aspect of existence. Just think about that for a second. And what would Descartes and Galileo have said? Just at the level of historical analysis, 
they would have said, Professor Atkins, you, with the greatest respect, have forgotten the history that gave rise to the revolution that you're a part of. You've forgotten that what we were trying to do was to investigate only a part of the problem. Nobody ever claimed in the 17th century that the scientific methods that they were starting to figure out how to use could explain everything. Nobody. That's a modern hubris. And actually, it's a misunderstanding. It's historically naive. It's a misunderstanding of the history that got us here. In fact, we should expect reductive materialism to run out of steam at exactly the point that you start running into questions that impinge on the mind. Questions that impinge on whether there is an underlying intelligence behind things. Questions of moral value and of aesthetic value. We would expect, if we were historically aware, we would expect the materialist paradigm to be unable to deal with those questions because it simply was never set up to do so. In fact, one of the consequences of this history, uh, philosophers among you will know, is the so-called mind-body problem. Okay, the, the partitioning of knowledge into the material and the non-material is exactly equivalent to the articulation of the mind-body problem, because the mind-body problem says, well, how, how are we supposed to understand the relationship between the mind, the mental, the non-material, and the physical? And people like Descartes had all kinds of theories about there's a funny gland at the base of your brain where the two intersect or something. But this is the story of philosophy for the last 300 years has been the failure to solve this problem. The problem was inevitable, given the way that the scientific program was set up, in one sense, it's not something to criticise, of course. The criticism should be levelled only at people who see a part of the problem as if it's the whole problem, who see a part of the world as if it were the whole world. You see this particularly in the writings of people like Daniel Dennett, a great writer, um, American uh, philosopher, uh, who's, who's tried to explain the mind on purely material grounds as an emergent phenomenon from physical and biological behaviour. The programme is doomed from the beginning because of the history that gave rise to it. What we need is a new paradigm. What we need is a new way of looking at the whole of the world which retains the strength of the scientific method which allows us, for example, to do experimentation because we value the work of our hands and what we see with our eyes and what we observe. It values logical thought and inductive reasoning so that we can piece together the evidence of experiments and so on. Uh, and so that it, it can retain the strength of the scientific method whilst at the same time allowing for the existence of non-material things like minds and consciousness and moral value. <laughs> I want to suggest that Christian theism provides exactly that position. Because it says that there is the most ultimate thing that exists is a mind. And that mind, the mind of God, has brought into being, by creation, other minds, ours, and also material things. So clearly, a Christian theistic worldview is going to at least allow for us to start thinking about what these minds are and how they behave. 
Moreover, it will allow us to have a basis for performing experimentation because we have every reason to believe that the world will behave in a predictable and orderly way because God is faithful and God sustains the world in such a way that we're able to live in it and gravity doesn't get switched off or turned upside down halfway through the week on Wednesday lunchtimes or something. There's no reason a priori why the so-called laws of physics should stay the same. It's one of the things that baffled Einstein. Why should the... Why should the world be comprehensible? Much less, why should it be possible for us to live in it? As a Christian theist, I think it's possible to get on with the job of science on the basis that God sustains an orderly world and to explain the existence of mental phenomena like consciousness, ethics, value and so on. That's the first historical reason to believe then. The scientific program from the beginning of the scientific revolution was never conceived of as something which excluded faith in God. That's a recent historical mistake. Second reason. I've alluded to this a couple of times already. This is more philosophical in character. It has to do with ethics, morality, uh, moral value and so on. One crucial feature of us as people and of our minds, therefore, is what we, we might call it a sense of moral judgment, moral sense, moral awareness. We think that certain things are right and other things are wrong. And it's increasingly clear that reductive materialism can't explain the origin or the character of this moral sense. I'm skipping through a lot of material in summary form here, but let me um, just continue that. And if we have questions at the end, of course, feel free to come back at me. Let's just ask the basic question. What kind of moral sense do human beings possess? Most people have a view of ethics or morality, which might be called moral realism. That's a technical term, which just means that some things are right and some things are wrong, regardless of what you think of them. Okay. Um, moral truths don't depend on our perceptions of them. They're, so to speak, external from us. There's such a thing as moral right, moral wrong. So most people want to say that murder is wrong regardless of what the murderer thinks. Now, occasionally you find people who, for one reason or another, and I think I know one of the reasons why they might do this, for one reason or another, seem willing to backtrack from that. At that point, I feel like saying, just give me your mobile phone for a second and rarely they do, and I'll tell them they can have it back when they agree that there's such a thing as moral realism on the grounds of which I ought to be bound by an ethical judgment which says that stealing is wrong. Because I might be just a different kind of person. I might just think that stealing is okay, and that's my phone now because, you know, that possession is nine-tenths of the law. Okay, now, most people want to believe in a kind of moral realism, which is to say that moral norms, moral rules, transcend the subjective preferences of different people and different cultures. The obvious contrast is what is sometimes called uh, moral subjectivism, which simply says that there are different moral norms for different people at different times and different cultures, and that those differences define right and wrong. It's not just, in other words, that uh, people in Somalia and people in Britain and people in America disagree about something, but that a particular moral claim is true in some places and false in others. That's what moral subjectivism entails. There are no transcendent 
moral principles and moral subjectivism. Let me illustrate with um, another story. We might call it the problem of the philosophical burglar. You arrive home uh, latest tonight after some food out there and a drink and then you get home and it turns out there's somebody in your house in the process of unscrewing your plasma screen TV from the wall. Uh, somebody you don't know, evidently broken in, and you say, quite reasonably, okay, get out or I'll reach for the 45 or whatever you do in this country. We, we, um, we, we're not allowed to do that in Britain. Um, and the burglar is of a philosophical bent, and on perceiving that you're appealing to some transcendent moral basis, he says, ah, I realise you're a moral realist. I, however... I'm a moral subjectivist. And in my moral world, stealing is perfectly fine. And because I've laid hands on it, therefore this TV is mine. Now, what are you going to say to the burglar at that point? Okay, Either you can be a moral subjectivist and say, well, okay, what's right for you is, I guess, right, and therefore I should relinquish my sense of ownership of the TV. But hold on, that doesn't seem very workable. Um, well, if you want to be a moral subjectivist, you need to go figure that out for yourself. Most people at that point reveal what actually they are, which is to say they believe there's such a thing as right and wrong, which transcends the individual moral judgments of the people who hold different moral views. And in order to say something to the burglar to get him out of your front room, you need to be a moral realist. You need to have some moral principle to appeal to. Now, this raises a problem if you're also a reductive materialist. Because if you're a reductive materialist, then what you believe that a human being is, is a bag of juice. And that a mind, and therefore moral value, if it exists at all, is a subjective artefact of your experience and nobody else's. There are no transcendent moral grounds for insisting that anybody else do anything. There are no grounds for moral realism if you're a reductive materialist, because there is no transcendent mind who, so to speak, stands over everything and gives ground for those moral judgments. Now, the story of 20th and early 21st century ethics is the story of successive attempts to find a basis for moral realism without God. And the quest has failed. And the quest is bound to fail. Because by definition, it requires the thing that is excluded at the start. Reductive materialism, in other words, implies moral subjectivism, which nobody really believes once the burglar has entered their front room. Now, an alternative would be to be a Christian theist. If you're a Christian theist, then you believe that the mind of God who upholds and transcends all things, so to speak, embodies ethical rightness, embodies value judgments which are binding upon us. Remember, we are not the ultimate thing in existence. God is the ultimate thing in existence, and therefore, as those who are dependent upon him, ontologically dependent on him, that is to say, for our existence, for our being, we are therefore ethically bound by him. We're required to do what he said because he made us, to put it simply. So, now you might not like what you've heard of Christian ethics. Now, that's a separate question. If you don't like Christian ethics, we have to have a conversation about what Christian ethics are. But at least in principle, 
a Christian theist is able to say to the burglar, I'm a moral realist and you need to be too. Because when you go home, you might find a burglar in your front room to whom you will object on realist grounds. In other words, if you're a Christian theist, you can have the moral norms that we all believe really in our heart hearts are actually there. That's the second reason, it seems to me, for preferring Christian theism over reductive materialism. It explains the most obvious feature of human relationships. That we all feel there are things that are right and things that are wrong. And that's just the way things are. Things don't become right and wrong because of social consensus. Unless you think, and I'll be provocative at this point, okay? If you think that right and wrong is defined by social consensus, go to Somalia and do a survey regarding the prevalence of female genital mutilation. You will find that 98% of women in Somalia are scarred by female genital mutilation because the moral consensus of the men is that this is a precious familial and cultural tradition. And if you object, as you should object, you're a moral realist. I'm sorry to be so painfully graphic about it, but we are stuck with this because morality matters in that kind of a way. And therefore, that seems to me a good reason to prefer a Christian view of the world. That's the second reason. Third, we now move to physics and what we might call the experimental or empirical grounds for a Christian view of the world as opposed to a reductive materialist one. I want to talk about what is sometimes called cosmic fine-tuning and the origin of the universe. It is increasingly recognised that the precise values of the physical constants which describe the world in which we live are exactly right to within an extraordinary degree of precision to allow the universe to exist, to allow it to exist in such a way that planets and even stars, certainly planets, can form and to allow it to support life. That is to say, if, if the properties of the universe in which we live were even slightly different from what they are, we certainly wouldn't exist. Stars probably wouldn't, and the Earth certainly wouldn't. Um, the, uh, the physics is complicated, but I, I want to go a little bit deeper because I want to give you a sense of how of the scale of the problem. Basically, what it, it poses a problem for anybody who thinks that the universe came into being by accident. Because the kind of accident you need is a fairly improbable one. Let me give you some examples. I'll, quick show of hands first. Anybody, any physicists? Come on, admit it. Oh, come on, there must be somebody. One, yes. Go, sister. <laughs> All right. Well, let's you and me talk, okay? Um, Hoyle resonance, okay? Okay, if the ground state energy levels of helium and beryllium nuclei differed from their present values by 1%, the universe will contain no carbon. Okay. No, no, no you don't need to be a biologist to know that's a problem. What I'm doing here is, is I'm, let, let's assume for a moment a standard cosmological model. The universe is 13.7 billion years old. The Earth is about 4 billion years old. Okay. Now, you might not agree with that, but let's assume that for the sake of engaging with people who do. Okay. 
If that's the case, and if stars and planets and heavier elements and, and other stuff came into existence in the way that the standard cosmological uh, model says they did, then if those values differed by 1% then their present values, you'd have no carbon in the universe. Now picture yourself with your hand on two dials, randomly spinning them to create a universe. You, if you get them out by one, this is some dartboard you've got to hit the bullseye, okay? If you're aiming for the middle, you, your aim has got to be pretty good. If you're spinning them randomly, you've got a fair, you've got a 99% chance of missing. But that's nothing. That's small beer, okay, compared to the next example of fine tuning. If the ratio of the strong nuclear force and the electromagnetic force constant differed by one part in 10 to the 16, I'll tell you what that means in a second, the universe will contain no stars. 10 to the 16 means one part in one with 16 zeros after it. Okay, so your hand on the dials again, you're randomly spinning dials, trying to create a universe that contains stars, right? And you're going to spin them randomly, okay? Now let's, let's suppose you try and aim. Your aim has got to be right to within 100 million millionth of 1%. If you get it wrong, no stars in the universe. Fancy chances? Okay, that's nothing. Compared to the next example of cosmic fine-tuning. If the ratio between the electromagnetic force constant and the gravitational force constant differed from, their, from its present value by one part in 10 to the 40, the universe would contain either all large stars or all small stars. Now, you might not think this is such a problem. After all, all stars are pretty big, right? Um, well, it turns out it is a problem. Um, the standard cosmological model for the universe says that you need a bit of both. You need large stars in order to generate the uh, conditions necessary to produce heavier elements like iron and silicon and stuff. But you need small stars, stars to burn long enough for planetary systems to form. Our sun is a pretty small star as stars go. Uh, large stars tend to burn out really quickly, but the conditions in them are right for generating heavier elements, which then can be sort of swirled around other smaller stars, and they can form planets and asteroid belts and that sort of thing. Right? So if you believe the standard cosmological model for the universe, your aim needs to be right, but within one part in 10 to the 40. Now, 10 to the 40 is sort of a ludicrously large number that most people have not the faintest idea what I'm talking about. So let me illustrate. Uh, anybody got a quarter, please? Can I have a coin? I'll give it back, I promise. Somebody? Anybody? <laughs> I'm not giving you 10 to the 40 of them back yet. Just want to throw it? Okay. Thank you very much. How's that? Right. Okay, this is an American quarter. Now, what I want you to do... <laughs> thank you. <laughs> what I want you to do is to cover North America with these. As follows. One there. Can I have another one, please? <laughs> right, okay, next to it, butting up next to it. And the next one and the next one. We need to cover this room... Then we need to cover the whole of Carbondale, the whole of Illinois, the whole of... Um, we need to cover the whole of... Think of Montana. Texas. You know you can fit Great Britain three times into Texas. Just, right, you need to cover the whole of your continent, North America, with quarters. And then you need to do it again. You need a second layer, and a third layer, and a fourth layer, and a fifth layer, and a sixth layer. And you need to keep your... By now, the pile is about half an inch high. Right, keep going. Inch high, two inches high, three inches high. Keep going until the pile reaches the moon. Right? And then do it again. And again. And again. And again. A million more times. Then paint this coin red. 
and hide it somewhere in one of the piles. <laughs> Blindfold your best friend. The chance of her picking it out right first time is about one part in 10 to 40. Okay? Fancy chances. But that's nothing. That is nothing compared to what I'm about to tell you about. Is it because you're now? Thank you very much. Round of applause, please. Sorry. <laughs> Paul Davies says, Paul Davies is a physicist. Um, he says, it's, he's not a Christian, by the way. He says, it seems as though somebody has fine-tuned nature's numbers to make the universe. The impression of design is overwhelming, but he hasn't even scratched the surface. Let me tell you about the next story. It's a shame we don't have a whiteboard here, because then we really could have some fun. Um, Roger Penrose is an Oxford mathematician and physicist, and he says, in this connection, the one thing that people keep forgetting about is thermodynamics. Now, if you've ever studied thermodynamics, you know that's the one thing that people keep forgetting about. Um, it's, yeah, let the head understand. Okay. Um, thermodynamics is the branch of physics or chemistry that allows you to predict and describe the behaviour of large, complicated systems. Like a room full of gas. I mean, how many gas molecules are there in here? Rough estimate? You don't want to think about it. Not 10 to the 40, but a lot. Okay? Now, to describe the motion of all those different things is phenomenally complicated. But thermodynamics can, give, can talk about the properties of the whole thing in terms of temperature and pressure and volume and so on. We're familiar with these are thermodynamic quantities. So thermodynamics is the best tool for analysing the behaviour of the universe. Okay? Because you can't work out the position and movement of every atom in the universe. That's far too complicated. But you can do thermodynamics. You can make these generalizations about the behavior of this large, complicated system. So suppose you now let's go back and assume the standard cosmological model for the size, temperature, rate of expansion, age of the universe, and work out its entropy. If you know what entropy is, good. Well done. If you don't, don't worry. I'm not going to try to explain it to you. But just, then you use the second law of thermodynamics to work out what the entropy must have been just at the moment of the Big Bang, or let's say just shortly afterwards, because the moment of the Big Bang, Stephen Hawking says it's a bit of a tricky thing to talk about. So let's say, let's say just afterwards, okay? just after the Big Bang. Now then you can calculate the likelihood of that configuration of matter coming into existence by chance. Okay? Now remember, one part in 10 to the 40 was the, the coins and the moon and all that stuff. Okay? The chance of that configuration of matter coming into existence by chance is one part in 10 to the 10 to the 123. Now just think about this for a second. What, what I just, the 10 to the 40 thing, that was a one with 40 zeros. That's the coins, moon, paint one red, okay? We could write that down, it would take us about half a minute, right here. From about there, about here. Nice big letters and we could all read it, right? To write down 10 to the 10 to the 123, we could, we could not do, if we wrote zeros, all of us, for our entire lives, we would never even scratch the surface of this. There are only 10 to the 80 atoms in the universe. If you wrote a zero on every, you'd have to get some pen or something that could write on atoms. If you wrote a zero on every single atom in the universe, you would not even be close to even writing down the number that corresponds to the, the inconceivable improbability of this universe coming into existence by chance in the beginning. Let me, you can see, you can put these two things together. Suppose you wrote down a zero on every atom in the universe, okay? That's 10 to the 80. And then you do it again, and again, and again, and again, and you do it 
10 to the 40 times. So you do it once for every coin in those million piles. Okay? Then you have a risk because you're 0.1% of the way there. Right? You need 10 to the 40 universes a thousand times just to write down the number in standard decimal notation. It is simply inconceivable that this can have come about by chance. This is not hand-waving arguments about biology and the eye looks like a really complicated thing and how can we possibly believe that arose by chance? Just tell me if you want to believe that something so spectacularly improbable just happened. Fine. But nobody believes that. Nobody. Which is why theoretical physicists are falling over themselves to find explanations for the thing which their own theory says is inexplicable. Now, if you're a Christian theist, you've already professed faith in a God who is infinitely wise. Now, let me just say something to Christians at this point. We bandy around words like infinite in relation to God with scarcely the faintest notion of what we're talking about. Okay? To say that God is infinitely wise means that it is the work of a moment over a Starbucks, you know, in coffee break, to create a universe, bang, that's that complicated and that improbable and that precisely specified. That's the God that Christians believe in. Most Christians don't realise that when they're talking about what God is like. If you're not a Christian... You might be thinking, great, you're really asking me to believe something. Here we are. I'm not trying to commend faith in some little puny deity that you can shove in the spare room of your house and go go to church twice a year whether you need it or not. This is something that's utterly life-changing because it's something which is universe-creating. Until we get, listen now, I'm still talking to Christians again, until we, you, get your head around, starts to get our heads close to being around that, we're not really doing God justice. But clearly, an intelligent designer with an infinite mind is not going to have difficulty creating something which is finitely complex. Okay? That is the God of the Bible. That's the third reason for preferring Christian theism to a reductive materialist view of the world. Here's the fourth. Here we get to the question that you're all thinking, when's he going to get to this? When am I going to get to biology? When am I going to get to evolution and all that stuff? Am I going to mention Darwin? Yes, I am. <laughs> okay. I want to talk about biological complexity and the origin of life because um, this is the thing you all thought I was going to talk about, so I need to don't I? This is the most controversial of all. Darwin's theory of evolution by natural selection is regarded by many as the ultimate triumph of reductive materialism. The one thing that was the stronghold of Christian faith has been battered down and is now the fortress of atheism. Atheists can even explain the existence of life. Or can they? See, in many circles, even to raise questions about this is to open yourself to ridicule. I I realise I don't know you. Um, I could be talking to a couple of professors of biology who simply cannot believe what they're about to, what they think they're about to hear. I'm going to say it anyway. Um, there's a wonderful story that epitomises this attitude, actually, and it, academics will, will realise this. There is a very great danger in the presumption that something is ridiculous. 
there's a uh, Chinese paleontologist by the name of Junyuan Chen who went to the US, came over here in 1999. He'd done some work on fossils in China. And the work he'd done there had led him to question some aspects of the evolutionary trajectory of some of the organisms he'd been working on. Perhaps because in being in China, he had access to stuff that American paleontologists and Western paleontologists hadn't been able to see back in the late 90s. So he brought this stuff over and he presented his work at a conference and he received a really cold reception. Um, and he asked his host, you know, well, what did I do that was wrong? You know, did I, did I offend people? Did I, was there some obvious mistake in what I said? I mean, he's not questioning evolution, okay? All he's doing is saying we need to tweak one or two aspects of the, the, the textbook trajectory for some of these fossils. And his host said something very interesting. He said, quote, American scientists don't like to hear such challenges to evolution. And Junyuan Chen says something wonderful. He said, you know, it's funny. In China, we can criticize Darwin, but not the government. In America, you can criticize the government, but not Darwin. So tell me, which group of scientists is the most free Interesting, isn't it? But it's not enough to tell stories, just as it's not enough to caricature and ridicule Christian belief. We need to get down to science, which means getting down to maths, and uh, it means thinking clearly, as clearly as possible, and avoiding the kind of impressionistic slurs that just muddy the waters. What Junyuan Chen's story highlights is the kind of reception you're going to get if you do that. So make sure that you understand what you're getting in for, okay? But that doesn't establish the point either way. Fun story. We need to be better than that. There are two issues, it seems to me, that the theory of evolution hasn't explained. And I would want to suggest can't explain in principle. The first is the origin of the first self-replicating organism. You will know that the theory of evolution seeks to explain how an organism which can already replicate itself can increase in complexity and change uh, down the generations, so to speak, to move from one kind of creature to another and adapt to its environment and so on. I'll come to that in a moment. But what that requires is you've got a self-replicating organism in the first place. And the one thing you're not allowed to use to get to it is evolution. The first self-replicating organism has to come into existence spontaneously, which brings us back into the realms of the kind of probabilities that you can calculate mathematically. And estimates vary, in truth, um, but all of them are in the kind of range of the uh, balance of the fine-tuning, uh, the balance of the, the fundamental constants involved in the fine-tuning of the universe. They're not the sort of thing that you know, having all those uh, amino acids just bumping together in a warm, muddy pool to create a single protein is sufficiently unlikely that you can rule it out on chance grounds. Now, I'm not making here a claim about any particular uh, organism, about the complexity of something that's evolved. Um, I'm not trying to say, look at the human eye or anything sort of vague and impressionistic like that. I'm just saying, look, do the maths. But you don't need to do the maths. Maths has already been done. And it's a puzzle which evolutionary biologists themselves are often wise enough to acknowledge. Stuart Kaufman says this, anyone who tells you that he or she knows how life started on Earth some 3.4 billion years ago is either a fool or a knave. 
Nobody knows. Okay, fair enough. Good. That's the first problem then. Second, and this is the point at which it seems to me evolutionary biologists think they're on safer ground. They think that they're on safer ground in explaining the development of increasingly complex organisms once you've got the first one that works. But it turns out that recent mathematical analysis has drawn uh, raised questions about that. The, the basic story goes like this. Um, evolution purports to explain how a simple organism can change into a more complex one, which is equivalent to saying how a simple uh, DNA string code, you might say, the, the DNA code from an organism, can increase in complexity over time. So, so that um, in information theoretic terms, the data content of the DNA strand increases over time as the organism interacts with its environment uh, down the generations. That's what the theory of evolution seeks to explain. In other words, it's, it claims that the information contained in the DNA of an organism can spontaneously increase without the input of intelligence from outside. Now, that is the very claim which was disproved in the middle of the 20th century by a Frenchman called Claude Shannon. <coughs> the so-called Shannon theory of information was developed to analyse the transmission of signals in uh, noisy channels. In the, right at the dawn of the information technolo technology revolution, when people started to transmit data at high speeds, what you've got is a problem of noise, and that limits how fast you can transmit the, the, the data, the noughts and ones. So you're going from Morse code which is, you know, you're listening to it, like that. You're actually going to something that's automated, and what you want to know is how fast can you do the dots and dashes, so to speak. The noise level in the line, the amount of hiss on the phone, okay, in layman's terms, limits the amount of data that can be carried. And one of the secondary results of the Shannon theory of information, which sought to kind of uh, articulate a general theory for this kind of thing, was that you can't, spontaneously increase the informational complexity of a string of data. It just, it just can't be done. It is a mathematical proof of the impossibility of that feat, which is analogous to the theory of conservation of energy. Okay? You, you, energy is conserved. You can't generate energy ex nihilo. In the same way, information is conserved. If this proof is right... It implies a mathematical proof, not just of the impossibility of the first self-replicating organism, which already is phenomenally unlikely for simple mathematical reasons. Even if you got the first one, the Shannon theory of information, if it's right, implies that the complexity of that first molecule cannot have increased spontaneously without the input of intelligent information from outside. It's just maths. That's all. Now, unsurprisingly, that claim has generated some contention. But it's just maths. That's all it is. And I want to say, look, it's, it's not good enough just to complain. It's not good enough to object, you know, what would we put in its place if evolution were displaced? Well, that might just be a problem that the atheist biologists have to deal with. As a Christian theist, whatever your view is of how creation took place, the one thing you're not short of is intelligent information from outside. 
Now, all this may sound just too difficult to believe for some of you. I'm aware. I know. What, I know what it sounds like when you're not a Christian. You hear a Christian talking. Okay. Um, if you're a, a scientist um, and uh, not a Christian, let, let me just, as you're thinking these things through, let me just leave you with one name ringing in your ears. It's the name of Thomas Kuhn. Remember him? On his work on scientific revolutions. Remember what he said? What happens? How science progresses? What happens is you get steady progress over time for years, maybe decades or even centuries within a particular way of looking at the world. But as that progress generates new and exciting results, new and exciting explanations of the world, it also generates new and unforeseen questions which cannot be answered within the reigning paradigm. What happens then is that you get to a kind of breaking point where the weight of the unanswered questions gets too great and people start to step back and say, you know what, the, the, the paradigm won't work. We need to just think again from the ground up, rebuild the theory in such a way that the new theory will contain all the benefits of the previous structure for thinking, the previous worldview, so to speak, but will also explain things we can't currently explain. You remember at the end of the 19th century, um, that was starting to happen with uh, Newtonian gravitation. Um, and people like Lord Kelvin said things like, you know, we've, we've discovered pretty much everything there is to discover in physics. You think, whoops. <laughs> then a young man called Albert Einstein comes along. And see, what's interesting is that the pressure of the unexplained things was already there. And people, here's the point I wanted to, to remind you, people were astonishingly resistant to the claim that Newtonian gravitational theory might not be good enough to explain the orbit of Mercury. But the simple fact is, Mercury's orbit doesn't work within Newtonian gravitation. It took general relativity to explain it. When you're just before the moment of that paradigm shift, what you expect is two things. Firstly, an increasing number of unanswered questions, an increasing number of things that just puzzles you can't shake off, and secondly, immense hostility directed to anybody who proposes a new paradigm. So expect to feel like pe people are looking at you. Pe people are looking at you like you're stupid if you propose something different. But you have a choice. You could either appear stupid now, or you can appear stupid in a hundred years' time. But looking cool the whole way through and not changing your mind when science reaches a crisis like it's at at the moment just isn't an option. It's up to you. You've been very uh, gracious in listening. I've talked for plenty long enough, and I think I should probably give you guys a chance to ask some questions. Do you want to come back up here, Phil? Yeah. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out more from Dr. Steve Jeffrey and the Word MP3 collection on Canon Plus. Thank you.